welcome to the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. I'm your guest, Jason Sarundalo. And we are your hosts, Parker Dillman. And Stephen Craig. This is episode 158. So a quick announcement before we jump into the podcast. Macrofab will be at South by Southwest in Austin, Texas. We are teaming up with Particle.io to put together a hardware happy hour. It will take place on Friday, March 8th from 4 p.m. until 8 p.m. at the super cool Jester King Brewery. Check the show notes for full details and RSVP. Join us for light bites and refreshments and network with fellow hardware nerds and kick off your South by Southwest weekend. So Jason Sarundalo is an engineer experienced in mechanical, electrical, and firmware engineering. Jason has over nine years of experience as a hardware engineer and working on electronic designs in Silicon Valley. In his free time, he works on open source projects such as USB-C tools. So yeah, today Jason is here to demystify the universal serial bus. So Jason, what about your day job makes you qualified to talk about USB? Well, I've been working with USB and USB-C now for uh, a couple of years. Uh, it started uh, really in earnest when I was at Cast.ar. So it's a startup doing augmented reality. And uh, I was focusing mostly on the electronics for the headset. And we were working to select a connector that would connect the uh, content hub, which had most of the processing up with the headset, which had all the uh, projectors and the microphone and speakers and everything. And we were looking for a connector that could carry some extra power, carry video signals, and then also have a line open for more housekeeping stuff and audio. Uh, and so right around that time, USB-C was just starting to go mainstream and seemed like a good fit. It had something like 10,000 mate DMATE cycles and could do everything in this small connector. So uh, I had to go and get really familiar with it so we could implement it in our design. Yeah, that's actually kind of convenient because USB Type C does all that. It does, yeah. So a lot of people don't realize you can run upwards of a hundred watts of power. Uh, you can also run DisplayPort or four channels of uh, Thunderbolt, uh, two channels of PCIe, HDMI. Uh, not all at the same time, of course, but they're each available as alternate modes. Uh, and then on top of all that, you still have a regular USB high-speed connection. So that's good enough for doing audio, sending data back and forth, uh, control signals. Uh, so it's really a capable connector. I, I don't know exactly how it closed down, but um, that's not what you're doing anymore, right? Right, yeah. So yeah, the short version is that uh, Castiar ran out of funding and had to shut down. So uh, almost everybody was laid off on, on this one fateful Monday. Um, oh, man, that's unfortunate. Was there any like precursors for workers or anything or just? Uh, no, I mean, it, it was pretty sudden when it happened. I mean, obviously, a, a group of us there were we knew things weren't going well, uh, but, you know, we didn't know exactly when the snack machine <laughs> runs out of snacks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so after that, um, took a little bit of time and um, I was actually over at Zipline for about a month, month and a half, uh, helping them with some of their firmware uh, and their new drones flying around uh, Rwanda, delivering blood. Uh, so that was a lot of fun. And then uh, was always interested in space and aerospace in general and found a space startup in the Bay Area, uh, Capella Space. And so I've been, I was there for about a year um, building software-defined radios. Uh, so the radio 
that they use is one radio that does radar uh, and high data rate communications. And so I was responsible for all the electronics pretty much aside from the power amplifier. And so like, so what frequencies did that run on? Uh, it's an X band radio uh, with about um, somewhere upwards of 500 megahertz bandwidth um, with some options to expand it a little bit higher. Uh, a lot of that is really dependent on the FCC um, licenses that you can get. Okay. So it can do anything pretty much, but it depends on how much money you, I guess you give the FCC. Uh, yeah, uh, it's not all about money. I mean, there's, there's a band set aside for doing radar at X band from space. Um, and so a lot of it is just, um, making sure you file those applications far enough in advance that you get the approvals when you need them. And yeah, not like right before launch. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So a few companies still struggling with that. You were in charge of all the electronics for that. You said minus the power amplifier. Yeah, so I was working on, uh, we called it the baseband board, uh, which had the NSOC from Xilinx, um, the uh, ADC and DAC, all the clock chips that you need to run everything, all the power supplies, and then all of the connections uh, from that out to the main spacecraft bus. So uh, we were not the flight computer, uh, we were shut off most of the time. And then the uh, flight computer was responsible for turning on the radio at the correct time and giving it the instructions of what to do. So, um, you know, that way it took a little bit of the pressure off of the radio design. It didn't need to be 100% working all the time if, um, you know, for power and thermal, uh, it was a lot easier. Yeah, so then uh, after that, um, recently I moved over to uh, Lyft Bikes and Scooters team. Uh, so Lyft has uh, the little um, rideable scooters, um, the stand-up ones, uh, and in a few markets. And then all of the bikes around uh, San Francisco here where I work, uh, New York, uh, like the City Go Bikes, um, those were all uh, operated, and built and operated by Motivate. And then it was recently announced that Lyft acquired Motivate. And so all those bikes are now under Lyft technically, and they're... Um, going to be rebranding them at some point. Uh, and that will probably be coinciding with the release of the bikes that I'm working on now. Um, and so that's a, you know, a bit of a change, but uh, going from building one satellite that absolutely has to work to uh, building thousands of bikes. Uh, yeah, mass mass production product, pretty much. So, so wait, when, when you say you, they're rebranding or they're potentially rebranding it, do they have to go to the field and retrieve all the bikes? I mean, the bikes don't last forever, obviously. So uh, as they come in for maintenance or uh, get swapped out, uh, the new ones will almost certainly have the lift branding. I'm not too privy on all the details of you know what the ID is going to look like, but uh, I do know that that has been announced. Yeah, Stephen, um, someone does have to go around and collect them like every day and recharge them, usually. So I guess you can just slap a new sticker on it then. Yeah, yeah, that that might that might be it. And I know that there's there's some uh, funky rules here in Denver with them, uh, such that if they're left, gosh, if they're left in a street, then the company who manufactured the bike gets a two hundred dollar fine. Uh, so cops can actually find them directly for that, which is kind of crazy. I guess it's whoever owns it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's kind of a weird rule because you well from a. If you're Lyft or I guess the other one's Bird or all these other ones, like, do you just like tell 
I guess you just have to tell your customers, hey, don't leave them in the street. Uh, yeah, basically, yeah. I, I think they're trying to they they they've seen them as a nuisance here, uh, but I don't know. It's it. I think they're kind of kind of neat. I like using the one I got to use in Austin. So, yeah, uh, they're they're very convenient. Um, the current bikes are uh, a docked model, so that you only go between two docking stations, and then the scooters are the dockless kind. So there's no like set station that you need to drop them off to. You just so you're supposed to put them off to the side so they're not blocking the sidewalks. But uh, I know around here, even in Oakland, so we don't have the lift. <clears throat> we don't have the lift scooters here in Oakland, but the other brands, you know, inevitably you find them in the street or they fell over. They're blocking <laughs> the path and just yeah. a big pile of them in the corner. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's something, you know, we're going to have to figure out, I guess, as a society. Um, but, the, but they all talk to the mothership, right? Uh, yeah. So, um, and at least for Lyft and I don't know about the other ones, like, yeah, they're pretty, pretty much constant communication. Um, so they, you know, they have GPS and, um, cellular connections. And, um, so they're, you know, in pretty constant communication and, you know, there's ops teams that go around to collect them. And I see them sometimes outside, you know, from Lime or Bird or whatever going around and picking them up, recharging them. So can you, Tell us anything that you're doing over there. Yeah, I'd rather not uh, get into a lot of the details of what I'm okay. working on. Um, yeah, even things like you know timelines and quantities and so forth are uh, you know pretty sensitive topics. So yeah, um, not uh, not at liberty to talk too much about what I'm working on. <laughs> and uh, obviously, you know, here with you, I'm. Just representing myself, so I'm not, you know, here officially uh, as a member of Lyft or anything like that. Sure, 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 sure. Yeah. Well, well let's go ahead and uh, and and kind of reel it back to uh, talking about uh, USB Type C again. Yeah. So, uh, uh, so, so you have. Well, actually, let's go ahead and uh, and talk about Reclaimer Labs, uh, which sure. is sort of your personal uh, projects, right? Yeah, that's the the name that I use for all the my hobby projects, the some of the open source stuff I'm working on. Uh, I sell a few of the boards on Tindy, um, and um, working on some other projects that I haven't made as public yet. Um, we can definitely talk about those uh, a little bit later for sure. Um, yeah, so Reclaimer Labs is just the uh, it's actually an LLC at this point, um, just a, a umbrella for all of that. And and uh, I'm so I'm on I'm on Reclaimers Labs right now, uh, just your front page, and it looks like you have a pretty extensive blog. Uh, it seems like you write quite a bit and uh, go into a good bit of detail, especially on uh, your USB Type C work. Yeah, so uh, I realized that um, as one of the engineers that was, you know, really using USB C and was sort of on the front um, edge of the adoption of USB C, uh, that I was answering lots of questions from other engineers, whether it was at Cast AR or go to meetups and inevitably USB-C would come up and people would ask me, you know, how does it work? What's going on? How do I get started? Um, and uh, so I took a lot of those questions that I kept answering uh, over and over again and just turned them into blog posts. So mostly so I don't have to keep answering them. <laughs> <laughs> if someone asks you that question, you hand them a QR code now. <laughs> yeah, I, I wish. Um, uh, but yeah, I can, you know, give them a, a brief overview and then tell them, you know, hey, I wrote this 
blog post that kind of explain, explains the basics. Um, and, uh, I also felt like there was a need for more of a, like a narrative, uh, description of what's going on with USB-C because obviously all the specs for USB and USB-C and power delivery, uh, that's all publicly available. That's freely available from USB-IF. Uh, but when you download that, you get you know several hundred megabytes with thousands of pages of detailed specifications. Uh, and it's not exactly clear where you would start or what's going on because it just is listing you know, voltages and currents and timing diagrams and so forth. Um, All the fun stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of detail. I mean, it's everything you need to, to start it, but the USB-C, like the Type-C document itself is like 600 pages or something. It might be more now because they keep adding to it. Oh, brutal. Yeah. They had like 3.1 came out like last year and that, you know, added another couple hundred pages onto it. So yeah, I think they're at 3.2 now actually. I uh, oh, see now I'm behind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think uh, uh, 3.1 was 2014 or so, I don't or 16 something like that. Yeah, yeah, that sounds about right. So, so you've created the USB C Explorer board, uh, which is kind of shown in uh, a large image on the front of your webpage. Uh, you want to mm-hmm. go ahead and talk about that and kind of uh, let our listeners know what it is. Uh, yeah, so. Um, it's an evolution of the breakout board that I designed. So the breakout board was just uh, a USB power delivery PHY. Uh, and you need a PHY generally because uh, the power delivery communication happens over uh, BMC at this sort of weird voltage level that you can't just direct drive off of uh, a normal microcontroller. Uh, so it's somewhere around like 0.6 volts and it's all very timing uh, dependent. Is that a differential signal? Uh, no, it's single-ended. Okay. Uh, so the BMC is biphase mark coding. So it just um, it's pretty much related to the the phase of the transition. So if you have like a long pulse and then a short pulse, uh, that's either a one or a zero. I forget which right now. But and then if it's the other way around, then it's the the other bit. Um, okay. And so having a phi to like handle the timing for you on that, handle the voltage levels. There's all sorts of pull-ups and pull-downs that are used for Type-C to indicate uh, different current capabilities without doing a communication protocol, but that means you need like all these different resistors that you can enable or disable. And so this one little chip, uh, it's at the smallest version, is like a millimeter square. Um, it can just do all of this um, interface between I2C, uh, which is easier to talk to, and then uh, the Type-C port. Gotcha, and that's the on semi F USB three zero two, I think. Yep, uh, I think it's the three hundred two B right now is like the latest version, and then there's like a couple of different part numbers uh, that give you a couple options for I squared C addresses because uh, there's no like address pin on it. The the BGA version only has nine pins, so uh, they got to be economical. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. Um, oh, this is used to be a Fairchild part. Yeah, I remember uh, dealing with Fairchild on this, and then uh, shortly after I left Cast AR, maybe while I was there, they were transitioning over to being on semi. The phone number changed, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, phone number <laughs> FAE. Yeah. Uh, the best description I've heard is uh, it's reverse Moore's law. It's the number semiconductor companies have every eighteen months. That's not far from the truth. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the, the worst one lately is uh, linear and analog. 
Uh, but yeah, so uh, I had this breakout board. Uh, it was useful even around uh, Cast AR because we could develop firmware on like a discovery board from ST or something like that. Uh, just jump around I squared C and have everything we needed. Um, and then I uh, got basically I got tired of having a jumper over to an Arduino or some other dev board. Uh, so I figured I'd make another board that just put the microcontroller on board uh, and then added obviously a debug interface to program it, uh, UART. And uh, I was uh, told about these really small OLED screens. Um, and so this one's about one inch on the diagonal um, and gives you, I think it's 128 by 64 pixels. Uh, it's just black and white. Um, but what it lets you do is just have a really nice um, user experience. So right now the default firmware will interrogate the other side of the cable. So it's uh, interrogate. Um, well, yeah. <laughs> you're going to give me that power or else. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. In a very non-threatening way asks, um, you know, what, what are the capabilities? So um, something like the 87 watt, Charger from Apple might have uh, three or four different voltages and current pairs of uh, what it can do. So um, almost always five volts uh, is one option, and some of them go up almost to 20 volts. Uh, or, uh, yeah, the 87-watt one, is I think, is like 20 volts and uh, 4.3 amps or something like that. Uh, and then it can just display those numbers right on the screen, so you don't need a, another computer and you don't need any scripts or... Uh, software on a computer, you just plug this thing into your laptop charger and it'll just list out what capabilities you have. Um, and that's really the the beginning of what you can do with this. So um, some other things I've done with it, I jumper, uh, jumpered over the debug port to a breadboard uh, with some load switches, uh, which you need if you're going to do uh, be a USB power source. And so I uh, uh, reconfigured the software to be a source and then I actually charged my MacBook through my USB-C Explorer board from a power supply on the bench. Uh, so that was a lot of fun and a little bit scary. <laughs> <laughs> how, how much, uh, how much juice was the, uh, with the laptop pulling? Uh, I have one of the really lightweight ones. Uh, so it's, I think 15 volts at, uh, about a, like up to 1.8 amps or something like that. Uh, and it really depends on the state of charge of the battery. Uh, so I remember the, the first time I went to test it, I was like really confused why I wasn't pulling any current. And then I realized I just had the laptop plugged in all day and the battery was fully charged and it basically didn't need any current. I, I've had that um, same experience doing um, USB micro back in the day and you know plugging in your you know smartphone to it and like, I hope this, this charger works I'd built. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a very expensive way to test. Yeah, that's actually what kind of what I want to get to is um, USB testing evaluation as well. Because mm-hmm. um, that's actually my biggest problem that I have with with these kind of USB designs, especially going to power delivery with, with Type-C, is like the am I doing this right question. Yeah. Um, because when you start looking at like testers and verification stuff, it's like, sure, you can read a blog post that says put a 5.1 K pull down on the CC pins and it will work. Right. But you build it and you're like, okay, it works in this one case that I have on my bench. How do you make sure it's going to work to the standard? Yeah. Um, so 
that's obviously a big question. And uh, a lot of the, a lot of the spec talks about um, maybe not exactly how to test, but what all the conditions are. Uh, so there'll be tolerances on that resistor, for example. Um, there'll be voltage ranges, uh, and you know the the easy way to uh, test it is um, you know get one of the uh, compliance testing machines that's probably like hundreds of thousands of dollars and just plug it in. Uh, but obviously, it's not uh, very accessible for a, a hobbyist working at home or uh, even like a small company uh, that it's a significant amount of money. Uh, so fortunately, there's a, a bunch of other options that are on the market right now. Um, the one that I've been using a lot lately is uh, this debugger from Cypress. So it's essentially a pass-through for USB-C, and it just taps the CC lines, which are the uh, configuration channels. Uh, and that's what's used to uh, coordinate the power and alternate modes between the two sides. Um, and then it just has some free software you run on your computer and it'll print out a list of every message that's going over the bus. Uh, and that thing I think is about $200, um, which, you know, in the grand scheme of things is not too, too much money. Um, the next level up, the one that we had at Cast AR, uh, was, uh, one from Teledyne LaCroix and that was, uh, I think closer to like $3,000. Uh, but it had uh, two different ports, uh, which was great because you could tell exactly which side was sending the messages. So even if one side was sending messages that should be coming from the other side, maybe at your firmware backwards or something like that, um, you, you could tell a lot more about exactly what was happening. And it would track things like the voltage change um, on the CC line to let you know something was inserted. Uh, it could check that all your pull-ups and pull-downs were working. Um, so, yeah, that's probably more of an option for like a small company, uh, but uh, it was very valuable in the early days getting things working because uh, it's tough when you have you have a new hardware design maybe that you made, you have brand new firmware you're trying to integrate uh, and, you know, something goes wrong and like, it doesn't all work right off the bats, right? So how do you figure out what's working and what's not? Exactly, yeah. And that I, I actually I did a little googling. It's the uh, CY four five zero zero Easy PD yep. protocol analyzer. Yep, yeah, that's it. Yeah, I'm going to put that in my shopping cart. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because it's I guess it's just not as simple as just throwing your oscilloscope on it and just watching stuff, right? Like that just doesn't. It's not going to cut it. Uh, yeah. So the the well, if you have a salier, um, which uh, a lot of engineers around here do. Um, it can definitely record the raw uh, bitstream going through. Uh, and then I think uh, last I checked, it wasn't like quite ready for prime time, but uh, there's a group out there that's, or someone on their own is working on a um, decoder option for Salier. So you would just uh, clip your uh, input onto one of the CC lines, and then um, it would do the... It can, right now it can do the BMC decoding, so it can get you ones and zeros based on the transitions. Uh, but then there's a 5B, 4B overhead, so you need to convert it um, from that using a table that's in the USB spec. Uh, and then from there you need to know, you know, okay, so we have the ones and zeros that it's trying to send, but you know, what does that mean and how, you, how do you decode uh, uh, like a header packet, for example, to get the length of the packet and... Um, you know, so one way you can do that is just go through bit by bit, and, you know, start at bit zero and work your way up. 
uh, from the spec. And I've definitely done that uh, from time to time when I'm like really trying to figure out what's going on. Or maybe there's something that actually there's one case where the protocol analyzer didn't know what a certain bit position did. And it was like something new that was added to the spec that my hardware was using. Um, so I had to like look up, okay, what does bit eight mean? Because that should be a zero, but according to this uh, protocol analyzer, but now it's a one for some reason. Um, and yeah, so just being able to get access to the raw, um, the raw packets being sent back and forth uh, can help quite a bit. Uh, and then if the protocol analyzer do a lot of the work for you, um, so either get some software in a Salier or the $200 Cypress one, um, that'll save you a lot of time. Oh, I have to look for that, that software package then. Yeah. Um, I don't know if it's like actually released yet, but it, I definitely saw people chatting about making one. So, um, yeah, unfortunately I don't have, uh, enough time to really go in and help them. So I'm hoping some industrious firmware and software engineers can go and get that working. So, so it sounds like a good option is, uh, the Cypress board and your Explorer board. So you kind of get the whole picture. Yeah. And, um, you know, just like with any sort of debugging, um, you know, if you can start from known good hardware, software, electrical, uh, and then just change one thing at a time, that can be really helpful too. So, you know, one option would be just get the USB-C Explorer board. Uh, I test them all before they go out. Um, and you can test it yourself when you get it and then put your new firmware on it. And then at least it's just the firmware is new. Uh, and if something goes wrong, you can just revert back um, and maybe even, you know, go line by line if you need to, but, um, you know, start, start with something that's good and then work your way to where you want to be. Yeah. I actually have one of those breakout boards right over there. So I've been messing with it. Oh, great. Yeah. The, um, my favorite thing is actually plugging in that, uh, the Explorer board into power supplies and seeing what they actually say they will do versus what they're advertised. Cause they're hardly ever correct. Yeah, there's a, a good tendency to round up. So it might be, you know, 2.4 yes. amps, but they'll just say, ah, oh, two and a half. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, on actually, actually on power supplies for type C power delivery, is there one that you would recommend for testing that is like it adheres to the spec? And if you mess up or you decide or you try to pull more than you requested, it will shut you down. Hmm. Uh, I haven't quite gotten that sophisticated with testing um one of the ideas uh for board and uh, that i've had is a uh, sort of an add-on board that would be a programmable load uh for the USB-C explorer so it could just in addition to telling you what the power supply says it can do it could just run the load and double check that it can actually pull that amount of current um yeah the best strategy that i've found is just having a variety of USB-C sources around. Uh, and so I use that for kind of, um, at this point now it's just regression testing the firmware, but, um, in the beginning, uh, certain power supplies were tolerant of like different, um, violations of the spec. So like, uh, if you took a little bit too long to respond to a message, uh, some of the power supplies would allow that and just keep functioning and other ones would um as soon as you were a millisecond late they would issue a hard reset and kick you off the bus and then your device would just be in a boot loop and it'd be kind of hard to figure out what was going on um gotcha i guess you could use the uh explorer to build like it 
you can build a source with that, correct? Yep. Yeah, yeah I've done that. Um, and then just monitor the power out and say, hey, if that device, if your device requested an amp, let's just use that for an example, and it went over that, you could mm-hmm. you can have a it can notify you that you know something's up. Yeah, uh, yeah, and there is uh, that the debug port on the side there, um, so you can do a I squared C or UART out and have it send a notification or just print something on onto the screen. So there's there's a lot of options with that board. Uh, so one of the things that uh, I'm actually a bit interested in myself is uh, some hardware layout tips. Uh, do you happen mm-hmm. to have any uh, suggestions or things that you have found that work better or don't? Uh, yeah. So for USB, until you get into uh, high speed, and for sure once you get to super speed, you need to lay out your traces uh, appropriately. So that's all the classic high speed differential pair uh, layout. Impedance control. Yeah. So, um, yeah, you need impedance control. You need to make sure... Uh, Try not to have right angles. Uh, keep everything length matched. Um, yeah, super speed's pretty forgiving. I think it has an embedded clock, so that makes uh, things routing a, a lot easier. You don't have to length match between lanes. Uh, but the uh, intra pair spacing, so that's between the P and the N, still matters quite a bit. Uh, for high speed, I've never had a design where like I've been so far out on the spacing that. I've had to like add bumps or anything because it that only runs at 480 megabits per second. Yeah, and that's USB 2.0. Yeah, yep, it's, yeah, it's uh, high speed because uh, USB 2.0 also covers uh, full speed, uh, and that's a lot more forgiving. You basically just be like slightly careful. You're not routing it directly underneath a switching power supply, and you're probably going to be okay. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, another trick is for high speed USB or really any high speed bus is if you can keep the connection short enough, uh, you can, you're all in uh, near field, uh, effects. So you don't actually need to worry about anything like impedance control. Um, so what's short so then short is generally, I think it's like one tenth of a wavelength. Um, and that you have to account for the fact too, that it's, it's the rising edge that's really defines kind of your fundamental frequency. Um, and so, yeah, I have to look up the numbers exactly, but generally if you can put two chips next to each other and there's only like a 20 mil trace, um, really, unless you're doing like hundred gigahertz stuff, um, that's going to be close enough. And so the, basically the pins will just couple with each other and the board design is not as important. Um, but obviously that, that can only work in a very specific situation. So, you know, if that's, if you have like a, USB 2.0, it's just a single pair and you can put your connector and your microcontroller like right next to each other. Uh, that can work. Um, I've definitely seen it done with, uh, things like MIPI, which is a high speed camera interface. Um, and if you're using an FPGA that can be a little bit flexible about which pins you can use, um, you could set up your camera connector and your FPGA right next to each other. Uh, and then you can avoid a lot of issues with impedance control and having to test that. Hmm. Have you ever had uh, hardware just flat out not work due to uh, the layout? Uh, not that I can recall. Um, you know, I'm usually pretty careful to follow all the guidelines. Um, and the guidelines I've found in general have uh, 
quite a lot of margin in them. <laughs> Manufacturing tolerances. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I've seen Mippy run through uh, like hand cut micro coax. That's like a couple of meters long and, you know, it worked just fine. And obviously all the specs are saying is like, you can't, you can't just like hand cut it. You're never going to get you know, accurate enough with the length matching or, um, you can't, you know, just holding it in the air instead of like properly grounding it and shielding it and, and everything. It's like, um, USB extenders. Like those are not in this, like you can't have those according to the state, uh, the <laughs> USB 2.0 standard. Yeah. But I, they, they work. i've seen some long extenders before (laughs) yeah Uh, you do have to be a little bit careful with some of that stuff now because not everything's five volts anymore so um if there are a few like adapters and cables that are explicitly like not allowed in the usb c spec um but obviously you can buy them uh and uh, you just have to be really careful if you use them because sometimes you could send you know, 20 volts from your laptop charger into a, like a flash drive or something that's just not ready for it. Yeah. It's like uh, building your own uh, generator cable. Do you know what that's when you put the mail in of a, like a, mm. of an electrical cable or uh, extension cord on one cable. So you can plug the outlets in. Yeah. Yeah. One of, uh, I like the picture uh, comes up uh, every year in the winter and it says if, if you need one of these cables that has the mails on both sides, then you've hung up your Christmas lights wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or I, I remember going to a hardware store and they had a picture of it, like that cable on the, uh, like hanging up in, in, in the electrical aisle. And they said, uh, if you need help building one of these, we are not helping you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And there's, there's a reason for that. I mean, the, the mains is uh, pretty dangerous. At least the USB-C stuff uh, probably won't, be able to kill you but um might kill your device yeah poor macbooks yeah i'll be entirely honest uh my 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 brewing rig currently it it will change but it is a 220 version of that that cable oh wow a, a, a 220 50 volt a 50 amp version of that cable oh yeah yeah that's a suicide game uh, so, so yeah, but, but, you know, Parker and I have talked about this a couple of times. In fact, we've, we've kind of envisioned some interesting projects with it, but, but USB type C has the capability of actually delivering up to a hundred Watts, right? So 20 volts, five yep. amps, right? So yep. I, I, a little side tension on that. Yeah. I can't find, at least on Amazon, I've only looked on Amazon. I can't find a hundred watt USB type C power delivery one. Like 96 watts is like what I see. I wonder what that four watt difference is. That's that yeah. manufacturing tolerances you were talking about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've had the, had the same thing. So the for a while, the highest power you could get was the 87 watts from Apple. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, yeah, there are a few that have cracked 90, um, 90 watts. Uh, it's still not exactly clear to me uh, why nobody's done it. Um, but yeah, one one thing I would like to do is take the USB-C Explorer board and hook it up to a power supply and have it be able to actually deliver the 20 volts, 5 amps. Yeah, I think this one, um, it's 90 watts. and uh, But when I hooked up your Explorer board to it, it says 20 volts, 3 amps, so 60 watts. But mm. it will allow you to pull up to 90. 
Oh, okay. Uh, I think I might know what's going on there. Yeah, that's uh, that was a little sketchy right there. <laughs> it works, but <laughs> yeah. Generally, um, when the when you do the negotiation for the power supplies, you're uh, setting up um, nominal or maximum, like that the source has to be able to provide. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think if you start drawing over that, it's maybe it's usually okay, but. It's just the source isn't obligated to keep giving you more current after a certain point, you know, gotcha. beyond what it signed up for. Yeah. yeah. And I did make sure to, I have the, I guess we can talk about this too. I have the E-rated cable as well. That was actually going to be my next question is, what do you need to actually deliver a boatload of juice? Yeah, so obviously you need the source like we talked about. Um, you need a sink that is capable of asking for it. Because uh, a, a lot of laptops will, you know, they'll just ask for what they need to charge the battery, and that might even change. Um, it might ask for less current if they're near fully charged. Um, the other thing you need is a electronically marked cable, uh, and this is something that freaks a lot of people out. Is that uh, with USB C, you have microcontrollers in the cable, so it's right there in the plug. Uh, and it will be able to tell both sides uh, what its capabilities are. And so that can be um, the higher power and um, the super speed pairs. So that's the higher power. Anything over three amps, you need to have an electronically marked cable. Uh, and so that's probably why if you just use a, a regular cable off the shelf with the USB-C Explorer, you're not going to see anything advertised over three amps. Um, and then... Uh, it, it's a little bit complicated on the source side because it has to talk to the cable and find out uh, what capabilities it has. And if it doesn't get a response, it knows you know, it's got to be less than three amps. And then I'll actually change what it's advertising. Uh, so uh, as an experiment, I took the Apple charger and plugged in the uh, that Cypress power delivery analyzer and then plugged in the cable that I knew was rated uh, for five amps. And as soon as I plugged it in, so I didn't have a sync attached, it's just the charger and the cable. Um, they had a chat about what they can do. And so then the charger knows, okay, when it sees the sync plugged in, um, you know, it can advertise the 4.3 amps. Um, but yeah, some of them, uh, they'll see a sync get plugged in and they'll advertise three amps and then they'll, Say like, oh wait, is the cable out there? Can you do more? And then if it does, it'll re-advertise uh, higher current. Yeah, because I've got a USB cable checker as well, so making sure that everything is legit. Because you don't know when you buy stuff on Amazon. So wait, wait, you're telling me that the the USB C cable I bought at the gas station the other day won't actually give me the full hundred watts? I feel cheated. Uh, yeah. I'm- might not. Um, <laughs> if you use the shielding, it might. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Actually, that that got us into uh, some trouble at one point with the EMC testing because uh, the cables that we were using uh, didn't have an internal ground wire. Uh, they were just using the shield as the ground. Oof. Um, and so we saw like this spike at what what was it like seventy two megahertz, and um, I'm like what is that? And then we tried it with the shorter cable and the. Uh, frequency went up and uh we're like okay this is obviously the the power cable and then uh we did a more thorough tear down later and we found you know like two nice um i think it was like 22 gauge i think it was like two 22 gauge wires for v bus um and then we couldn't find anything that was ground so 
that was obviously just the shield. <laughs> <laughs> on I, on on that, um, this goes a little back to the layout stuff. Is um, the shield on USB connectors? Mm-hmm. I, I've looked up like how you should terminate this, and the USB spec. I can't remember the exact wording, but it's like your miles may vary. Is its explanation? <laughs> Because um, yeah. it needs to be connected to ground, but it doesn't. You know, like Cypress says, you should do like a low pass circuit or something like that, and other people have different ways of doing it. Um, so, what was what's your preferred method of connecting the sh- the connector shield to your, I guess, ground on your your PCB? Yeah. So uh, everybody's got a, a different idea of what's you know the quote right way to do it, and. I think, you know, the, the correct answer is it depends. Um, you know, the simplest thing to do sometimes is just put, um, maybe put a pads for a resistor and a capacitor, and then you can change what the stuffing is later. So you can put a zero ohm in there if you want, or uh, do a, an RC filter. Um, so that gives you a lot of options down the road. If you get into <clears throat> uh, FCC uh, pre-scans and so forth, and you're having trouble, um, I generally just go for grounding the shield. Um, uh, generally, I think the best way to do it is you ground the shield on one side and then maybe have some loose connection on the on the other uh, or just leave it floating. Um, that's the... Yeah, yeah. That's If you go into the RF world, that's like how you would shield a cable. But in the USB spec, it you don't know if, like, if your hub did that and then you didn't do it then your whole shield's floating. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I think they they might specify it for USB 2 uh, when you'd have uh, one device was very clearly like the power source and the uh, data uh, source. And then the other side was the data sync and the power sync. Uh, now with USB-C, um, those roles don't have to be the same for one device. So you can have a device that's a data source and a power sync at the same time and you have lots of dual road devices so they can be either uh, power source or sync depending on the configuration you plug things in uh, and then they can do swaps uh, you know mid-session they could swap who's being the source and who's being the sync um, and of course the connector is the same on both sides so you can't just design it as like oh, always ground the shield for type A's and never ground the shield for type B's or something like that so yeah, it's it's a uh, very complicated and um, yeah, I think the best option is if you're designing a new product is just put the pads there so you can change the bill of materials later and fix it, um, and that just gives you the most flexibility uh, unless you know exactly what you need to do based on something else. Less respins down the road. Yeah, yeah, I'm a big fan of putting in extra stuffing options. The, the copper pads are free, so take advantage of those well and parker don't you uh don't you do a ferrite bead uh to ground yeah i generally do a ferrite bead to ground like a hundred megahertz one so it seems to get around every single time i've done fcc stuff that seems to because i always put you know a zero ohm resistor there and then like okay the cables radiating stuff just pop this one bead down and it usually gets rid of it but even then it's like you know some people do that. Some people say that's the wrong way of doing it. Some people think it needs to be connected. Some people like it's all over the map. I think it basically it's what Jason's saying is you need to do what works for your application 
And I think that's why the USB spec says that basically <laughs> just pepper your board with FCC pads everywhere. Uh, things that you can adjust in testing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Not a bad strategy. Yeah. So, uh, one of your older projects was a USB type C easy bake oven, which I thought yep. was a really cool application of, of power delivery. Do you have any more projects like that coming down the line uh, that you'd like to spill the beans on? No, nothing, nothing on uh, USB-C uh, right now. Um, that that was more uh, when I was talking to people and they didn't really appreciate how much power USB-C had, like literal power. Um, yeah, I was like, what else is about 100 watts? And it's like, well, the old Easy Bake ovens just used a light bulb. And uh, yeah, it turns out the new ones just use a nichrome wire. Uh, so it was even easier to modify. Um, but yeah, uh, these days actually I'm working on a another project that's more related to uh, sensor monitoring. Uh, so I have uh, a new board I've designed um, just about to uh, get into the routing stage. I've got placement figured out pretty much now. Um, and that board will <clears throat> it'll be able to monitor a variety of sensors. So things like thermocouples, pressure, transducers, uh, strain gauges. Um, and then uh, it's all based on the new particle... Gen 3 hardware, the the mesh hardware. And we've done some tests on our own uh, for what uh, range you can get on the mesh network. And it's usually like 100 meters or so, assuming you have line of sight, is a pretty reliable. Uh, so the idea is you could put a bunch of these sensors around and put the mesh-only PCB on most of them, and then just have one that connects to the cellular network or... Uh, out to Wi-Fi. Uh, we even looked at um, doing a satellite link, so we'd get like a satellite to Wi-Fi bridge um, and then uh, hit the MRSAT BCAN network. Uh, and so you could deploy these things anywhere that you had power and then monitor uh, whatever you needed to uh, and then uh, pair that with software that's running on a server that's monitoring the values coming in and can send alerts, so hook into PagerDuty or send you a text message, an email, uh, something gets out of spec. Um, and uh, I think one of the first applications we're going to have is uh, our own brewing rig uh, for home <laughs> brewing. So. And this is going to be on Reclaimer Labs? Uh, yeah, I haven't decided exactly how I'm going to be doing this, but um, yeah, it'll be through Reclaimer Labs. Um, the board that I designed is uh, very capable. It's got a bunch of sensors built right into it, and it uses some high-quality connectors. So uh, that means that the cost is pretty high as well. Um, so I might not be able to uh, put it on Tindy for as less money as some of the other projects. So uh, I might be able to put some of the extras up there, and I'll just have to put them in at a, a little bit of a higher price. Um, is this going to be for like industrial applications as I'm assuming and brewing. Yeah, that's the target right now. Yeah, that yeah, industrial applications and home brewing, or uh, maybe even something like a, a microbrewery. Um, yeah, uh, this all started with a, a friend of mine who was in grad school uh, doing material science research, and sometimes they have to run samples in a furnace for you know, three months at a time uh, to do an anneal, and it needs to be at that temperature that whole time, and so uh, anything that uh, let him monitor the temperature and, you know, he could check it from his bedroom and not have to like walk all the way across campus to double check on his experiment, um, was very helpful. Um, 
and then we were looking at the board design and we're like, this is pretty close to being able to do a bunch of other sensors. So we just added some extra biasing network options so we can set it up to interface with a, a lot of widely available sensors. So you can do like four to 20, um, differential, all the major industrial players. Yeah. Yeah. So the three ones that we're targeting mostly is a thermocouple four to 20 and a millivolt per volt. I, I think we could, do you have anything else, Steven? I'm looking over our list and I think we're done. Well, first I'd, I, what I'd, I'd like to hear about is, um, well, can you uh, let people know where they can find more about you? Uh, yeah. Um, so like we talked about the Reclaimer Labs website, reclaimerlabs.com. Uh, front page there is the blog post. So uh, keep an eye on that for new updates. Uh, I'm also on Twitter at uh, Jason Srundalo, and we'll put a link to that in the show notes, I'm sure. We got that for you. Also, you have a, you have a GitHub uh, too, right? Yeah, I do have a GitHub on a, also under Reclaimer Labs. And so we'll be putting all of uh, all the designs I work on at home uh, go up there uh, with an MIT license. So uh, like the USB-C Explorer, if you have a, a USB-C project that you're working on and you want to just copy the relevant page in my schematic, go right ahead and um, get that in your design. Uh, all the firmware I work on is uh, also open source as well. Oh, cool. So, Jason, do you want to sign us out this week? Sure. That was the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. I was your guest, Jason Sorundolo. And we were your hosts, Parker Dillman. And Stephen Craig. See you later, everyone. Take it easy. Thank you, yes, you, our listener, for downloading our show. If you have a cool idea, project, topic, let Steven and I know. Tweet us at MacFab, at Longhorn Engineer, or at Analog ENG, or email us at podcast at MacFab.com. Also, check out our Slack channel. If you're not subscribed to the podcast yet, click that subscribe button. That way you get the latest pep episode right when it releases. And please review us wherever you listen, as it helps the show stay visible and helps new listeners find us.